Welcome to the 21st episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we talk about murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. This week's episode takes us into the mind of a depraved mother who killed her own children. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where we covered the sadistic murderer Stephen Oaken in Baltimore County, Maryland. Fair warning, our show can be extremely horrifying and graphic, and we will use offensive language, so if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, be forewarned, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but sometimes we'll make jokes and laugh during our podcast. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform, and please give us a five-star rating. While you're there, leave us a comment telling us which murder intrigues you. And if you like our show, please consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash itwasn'tmepod. We appreciate our Patreon supporters more than we can express with words. Thank you so very much. Cindy, how's it going? It is going well. How are you? Oh, I'm a little bit under the weather today. So, uh, yeah, I said so. I'm going to try not to say so today. But I've been a little bit under the weather. Um, but I'm super excited to be here. <laughs> me too. Me too. Did you have any big plans this weekend? No. If I did, it's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I've been doing this week? I've been watching, oh my Lord, the trials of Gabrielle Fernandez. Have you started watching that yet? No, I have not. But my daughter posted something on Facebook about it. Oh, it's horrific. It is horrific. So if you have, I said so. If you haven't seen it, you should start watching it. It's, um, it's heartbreaking. It really is. Ugh, I don't need any more heartbreak this weekend. Oh, oh, you want to talk about it? No. Okay. Well, shall we start? Sure. Okay. Well, this week, um, our murder is slightly related to the Gabrielle trials because uh, this is about two children who die at the hands of their parent. It's not as horrific as Gabrielle's case, but it's still heartbreaking. So um, also, believe it or not, it is loosely related to the pharmacy because we've talked about a pharmacy the last two weeks, right? Yes. Yeah. Anyway. This week's murder features Christina Marie Riggs, who was born September 2nd, 1971 in Oklahoma. Her father was not a huge part of her life, kind of abandoned the family when she was quite young. So she always had daddy issues. Her mom married another man, stepfather, who brought in his own kids into the mix. So it was a mixed family. That when can she, be difficult. Yes. Especially when you're seven years old and your stepbrother starts molesting you. Yeah, that might be a problem. Yeah. So he molested her from the time she's about seven, close to eight, until she turned 13. How I don't, old was this guy? I don't know. I don't know. He was a year or two older than her, I believe. It didn't didn't ever say how old he was or even why it stopped when she was 13. So it could have been that he was that age, to that the age to move out when she was 13. I don't know the story there. Okay. She... Um, he molested her from seven to 13. When she was 13, her neighbor raped her. So from, so this girl from the age of seven to 13 had been molested and raped. So after that, she began smoking cigarettes and pot, taking the, you know, taking the bad road. She started drinking, sleeping around. 
Um, she was very promiscuous. She believed that she was too fat to get a boyfriend unless she had sex. So she, you know, she just never believed that anyone could love her because she was overweight and kind of, you know, just, I'm not going to say what I was going to say because it's not appropriate, but it did hurt her. She, in one of her high school journals, she wrote this poem, love is not incest, rape, or violence. Love is not hate. Love is not lying, fighting. Love is not having to say you're sorry. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty sad, sad, huh? Yeah. yeah. Because girls at that age, you know, you just want to fit in. You want to have a boyfriend who loves you. Oh, yeah. Especially, like, other, she sees it with other girls and other relationships. And she might have been, if she didn't feel like she quite fit, you know, she was doing all these things thinking that this is what she needed to do to make right. people yeah. like her, love her, etc. Right. Well, she ended up getting pregnant at at 15 by an African-American kid, African-American boy that she went to school with. And her mother was horrified. Her mom, Carol Thomas, was horrified. I'm not sure she was horrified because her daughter was pregnant at 15 or if her daughter was pregnant by an African-American kid or both. I'm not sure. But the mom said, you know, I had a pretty married, uh, pretty rough life. I married young. I just don't want to see her going down the same path. Her mom talked her into giving up the baby. She ended up giving the baby up for adoption, but she always thought about this kid. And the mom, um, her mom, Carol, didn't realize that how affected she was by giving up that baby. Because mm. it's not as if she had decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give this baby up for adoption. It wasn't like her decision. She probably felt pressured, so she wasn't really... She didn't have closure with it. She Could be. Yeah. She, she felt more forced with it. And so. But who's going to take care of her kid? I mean, you know. Yeah. Anyway, she did end up graduating high school. And after high school, um, well, during high school, she dated quite a few boys. Um, and she dated one guy named John Riggs off and on. We'll come back to him. But after high school, she did go to, I don't know, some sort of like trade school or something. And she got certified to be an LPN licensed practical nurse. That's a good job. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, she always worked two jobs. She worked part-time in home health care, and then she worked full-time at a VA hospital. And again, she dated lots of men. She included, including a sailor and a bar bouncer. And then in 1991, she started dating Timothy Thompson, who was in the Air Force. She soon became pregnant, but she didn't tell him for a while. She finally ended up telling him the day that he got discharged from the Air Force. She's like, by the way, I'm pregnant. I'm not sure why she waited to tell him. But he's like, you know what? I'm out of the Air Force. I'm I'm out of here. So he told her he wasn't interested. And he went back to where he was from, Minnesota. So she was pretty much on her own pregnant. Golly. So someone, another male person abandoned her. Right. So right. So this is just kind of stereotypical daddy issues. Like you said, there's yeah. that abandonment issues. And, that's, and then that just compounds it even right. more. Ugh. Awful. Um, after the ba- the unborn baby, oh, I'm sorry. After her, uh, that guy left, she was pregnant. She ended up getting back together with John Riggs, the guy that I mentioned she had dated off and on in high school. And he told her, he's like, look, you know, let's eventually get married. I'll, we can just say this baby's mine. And so she, he basically promised he would help raise the baby as his own. In 1992, she gave birth to this baby boy. She named him Justin Dalton Riggs. Now, she said that she loved the baby from the moment he was born. She, she wrote, he was so beautiful. When I held him in my arms, I thought my heart would explode. I was so proud. 
I held Justin in my arms and looked into his little face. I became so scared. Would I be a good mom? Could I give him all he needed? So these are things that new moms always think about. Oh, right? absolutely. Now, eventually, the real father, Tim, he agreed to pay child support. And he also wanted to begin visiting his son. But for most of this kid's short life, the little boy only knew John Riggs as his dad. Now, John and Christina, again, met and dated in a high school in, uh, just outside Oklahoma City. They ended up getting married after the baby Justin was born in 1993, and they had a daughter named Shelby shortly after that. By 1996, the couple had moved from Oklahoma to Little Rock, and this was after the Oklahoma bombing of 1995. I'm going to put that in there because it comes up in a little while. Um, but Oklahoma City, uh, that bombing, what was it? Timothy McVeigh. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Oklahoma City bombing. Yes. Yeah, Timothy McVeigh. They hoped to get help with childcare by her mom. Her mom lived in Little Rock. And their son, Justin, had been diagnosed with ADD with hyperactivity disorder. So he was severely hyperactive. They had a a difficult time caring for him. They couldn't find sitters that would uh, come back. He was in and out of numerous daycares. They're just like, you know, we can't work with this kid. Wow. So she thought, you know, if I get help with my mom from my mom, I can make this work. Now, eventually, after moving there, their marriage crumbled in February of 1996. They ended up divorcing. Christina divorced John Riggs, and he moved back to Oklahoma City because he ended up punching Justin in the stomach so hard that Justin needed to go to the hospital for medical attention. Oh, crap. Now, when Justin got out, Justin was crushed because he said... Now, this is what his mom said he said. Mm -hmm. Justin would say, my daddy hurt me, and then he went away. Aw, bless his heart. And according to court testimony, Riggs had trouble getting her ex-husband to pay child support for Shelby, which added to her financial problems. He also did not seem interested in seeing the little girl once he moved back to Oklahoma. So he pretty much just cut himself out of the boy's life and then also his own blood daughter. God, again, someone abandoning. Right? Jeez. Now, from then on, her financial circumstances got worse. I imagine so. Child support payments from Riggs came irregularly, as well as from Justin's dad, Timothy. So Riggs was working long hours. She had just gotten a job at the Arkansas Heart Hospital. She was also working for a temporary nursing agency. But her child care bills were mounting. She says she, um, in an interview, said the more you work, the more you need daycare. Then you feel bad because you have them in daycare. And as moms, we definitely know that. Um, Yes, I remember... When I was going, I was, you know, when I was going to Florida State in Tallahassee, I was a single parent at that time. And my daughter, I had had to have a full-time job and I went to school full-time. So luckily there was campus, a campus daycare, but she was at daycare during the day. I'd pick her up. I'd take her to daycare at the college so that I could, you know, try to make a life for ourselves. And it really, I mean, she was in daycare more than she wasn't in daycare. And it's really kind of, it is sad. I mean, it is. It is. They were great daycares and she had fun and she learned stuff, but it was. Being a single mom is not easy. No. It's not easy for the mom. It's not easy for the children. So, I mean, I definitely kind of understand her feelings a little bit here. Most of It is. You know, you feel like you're sinking. Now, Riggs remembers, she, she remembers dropping Shelby off at daycare for the first time. She said the child cried as she walked to her car. She's like, my little girl was beating on the glass, yelling, mama, mama. And she had recently gotten in trouble for writing bad checks. So Riggs not only had these difficulties, but she's writing bad checks. Mm. And 
she got in trouble for it. So I don't know if she got subpoenaed. I mean, did they take you to jail for that? I'm not sure she got arrested or. I mean, they will what? if you don't pay it. Mm-hmm. They'll, uh, they will put a, you know, depending on. I mean, I had a friend one time who wrote a check to Publix and she didn't. For whatever reason, she didn't get notified, and it came out later. It was because, like, they had the wrong address or whatever. And it was for, like, literally, like, 5 to $10. And they put, they took it to the courthouse, and they put a warrant out for her arrest. Okay. I mean, and then when she figured it out, she, like, took care of it right there. She never was arrested so I don't think like that. I don't think Christina was arrested, but she had gotten in trouble for writing bad checks. So all of this is going on at the same time. She realized that she was going under. Her car registration had expired. Her car insurance had dis- expired. She's going under. Been there. She's like, I started out a boat with a small hole, but the hole just kept getting bigger and bigger. And no matter how hard I bailed, I just kept sinking. Mm. And other people around her sensed that something was wrong. Her mom said, you know, I knew something was wrong. And I would ask her and she would just say, oh, she's tired and working too many hours. Rick said that I was tired and I gave up and suicide seemed like the, the only thing. She, it was then that she devised a suicide plan that apparently shocked the world. Just another sensational headline from somewhere in Great Britain. Anyway, on November 4th, 1997, Riggs, who was working as an LPN at the Arkansas Heart Hospital in Little Rock, stole a bottle of Elevil, which is an antidepressant. She also stole, stole morphine, which is an opioid. And she stole potassium chloride. Now, in normal circumstances at a hospital, potassium chloride is used to treat low potassium levels. It's also one of the drugs used in lethal injections for people on death row. It can stop the heart pretty quickly when used correctly. Mm-hmm. It says that along with being an executioner's drug, potassium chloride is also used to help heart patients. Now, whether it's intended to kill or heal, the drug can be delivered only in a diluted form and only intravenously, which helps it enter the body slowly. So if it's given as a shot which is not supposed to be given as a shot. It's supposed to be given intravenously diluted. It will immediately burn up your skin and your veins, making it impossible for it to reach your heart. It's very, very painful. Which is one of the reasons why people who are against lethal injection complain about it and say, oh, let's be humane. Yes. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit because it is part of a three drug three drug uh, injection or something. and I've heard since that you know we were getting those drugs the United States was getting those drugs from countries that do not believe in the death penalty so they stopped selling them to the United States uh-huh. and now we're on like a one injection but that's for you know another time oh, okay anyway uh, it is so lethal that nurses have the option of refusing to administer the uh, potassium chloride so she's like, hmm, oh, wow. I figure it'll be the perfect way to kill myself. And I'm going to talk about a little bit more. She talks about her idea in just a second. Okay. So she takes these drugs home and at, back at her residence in Sherwood, Arkansas. It's about 10 o'clock at night and she's going to go through with it. Okay. She's been in turmoil and conflict for the last three or four weeks. She took one Elevil, cut it in half and ended up giving it to her children to make them sleep. Then after they fell asleep, she went into Justin's room and injected him with the potassium chloride in his neck. Jesus now, Christ. Yes. So he woke up screaming in excruciating pain, you know, because it's burning his skin and his veins. Well, she probably, being a nurse and dealing with this, did she not know that She's an LPN, so it's not the same as a nurse. They're not no, the same medical... Tra- 
they're licensed practical nurses. So they're more like. They're not RNs, but they right. go, I mean. They don't get the training. She had no idea that you dilute this drug. No, that's bullshit. She's an idiot. They do get the training, though. Well. She should have known She better. missed it. She, she missed it that day. Okay. She must have been absent that day. She ended up injecting this into her son's neck and it was excruciating. So to calm him, she decided, hey, I'll just inject him with morphine. But it doesn't work that way. He was still crying and screaming in excruciating pain. So she takes a pillow and smothers her child. She does later say that he fought back as she smothered him. I bet he did. Now, she said that she got the idea to use potassium sodium as a suicide agent when one day she and some fellow nurses were just standing around talking about the easiest way to commit suicide. Because that's normal conversation. Yeah, right? Yeah, well, you don't want to use a gun because you can end up as a vegetable. You slit your wrist and then there's a bloody mess. But with the potassium chloride, it would be no pain, no mess, no nothing. She just thought, man, a sudden push and then. But she wasn't aware that directly injecting the potassium chloride would not only be a futile, but painful chore. If anything, she thought that a shot would be quicker and more efficient than using an IV um, and just letting it trickle in. She quickly found out that her mistake was, um, was a painful one because... Even half asleep, he was just screaming out, Mama, Mama, it hurts. She says, I panicked. Um, it was a shock. I didn't know it was going to hurt him. I didn't want to hurt him. And she said that she had some leftover morphine, and that's when she injected it. Now, police say, uh, doctors say that it takes four to six, three to six minutes to kill someone by smothering them. So she smothered her son, and then she went and smothered her daughter. I do not feel sorry for her. Nope. Mm-mm. After her experience with what happened to Justin, she just decided she was going to forego the potassium chloride with her daughter. She later told police that Shelby only fought a little bit. Now, following the murder, she took both the bodies of the children, put them in her own bedroom, um, put them in in her bed next to each other and covered them up, tucked them in, and then she proceeded to smoke some cigarettes, drink some alcohol, and do some writing. She wrote four suicide notes. Okay, and, and exactly why isn't she dead yet? Hasn't she? she hasn't tried to kill herself yet. That's my next sentence. Oh, I apologize. No worries. Um, after she wrote her four suicide notes, she then took a large quantity of the antidepressants. She actually ended up taking the rest of the bottle, which were 28 pills, which is supposedly enough to kill somebody anyway. Elavil? Elleville. Yeah, most definitely. I, I, had, I don't even know what it is, but she was taking it for pain. So it was like a, mm-hmm. it's an antidepressant pain. Yes. Nerve pain thing. Yes. I actually um, took Elleville okay. with my, to help me sleep. Is that what messed up your head? I guess. Oh. <laughs> just uh-huh. well, I I'm just the, teasing. But when I was prescribed it, it was when I was having all the nerve pain. And it was, I would take it at night so that I, it would help me sleep because okay. it makes you drowsy. But my doctor told me that if a child gets a hold of this, it's not, the only result is death. Oh. He said, so you have to make sure. So she could have just given the children more than half of an Elevil and it would have done the trick? Yes. I mean, my. Not my that we're ne- giving anyone any ideas, but right. yeah. But my neurologist like made it sound like that one pill would kill him. Okay. So he was like, these cannot. And I'm like, well, my kids are teenagers. And he's like, it doesn't matter. They cannot be anywhere near this. He was very adamant about that. She she took the rest of the pills and then she injected herself with a potassium chloride concentrate. Oh, did she put it in her neck? Um, She actually put it in her arm and she did not dilute it. 
and it quickly ate a hole in her vein um, and her arm collapsing her vein. So the drug never reached her heart. Such a shame. I know. She was rendered unconscious. Now, the suicide note that she wrote to her mother explained her actions. She said, Dear Mom, I'm sorry for the pain I've caused you throughout my life. I feel as if a dark cloud has hung over my life for many years. It seems that no matter how hard I tried to better my life and the kids, I did nothing but make it worse. I hope that one day you will forgive me for taking my life and the life of my children, but I can't live like this anymore and couldn't bear to leave my children behind to be a burden on you or to be separated and raised apart by their fathers and live knowing their mother killed them, killed herself. Go ahead. I mean, I'm sorry that she was so depressed that she found that suicide was the only option because I don't, I really do believe that depression is a sickness it's not so much death by suicide it's more you know death by depression she died from depression right that led to her thinking she had no other options but i cannot wrap my mind around well i'm going to take my children out too that i cannot right i can't wrap my mind around and, and we're going to get into that in a little bit more because it is part of her defense she says in the same letter that she tells her mom that if the adopted child, the one that she had when she was 15 and had to give away, she said, if that child ever tries to find his biological mom, please tell that child that I thought about him every day and always hope that giving up uh, was the best thing that I could have done for him. And then her mom, Carol Thomas says, well, I always thought she got over that. Like we, we never talked about it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know uh -huh. that that's something you get over. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, she ends up ending the letter with, I'm sorry, mama, love your daughter, Chrissy. She then um, wrote another suicide letter. Uh, the ones for her sister and mother were left in a spiral notebook on her nightstand. And in the letter to one of her sisters, she wrote, dear Rosie, I'm sorry. I need you to take care of mama. She's going to need you more than ever. Stay close to her. This is going to be hard for her. And I'm truly sorry. I'm just so tired. You've been a great sister. I love you. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Love your little sis, Chrissy. Now, in one of her, in the suicide note, again, she says, um, do with my stuff as you see fit, but please keep something back that you think my first baby might like to have if he should ever find you and tell him how hard it was for me to let him go and how much I loved him. She also wrote a suicide note to John Riggs, um, the, the guy she married, and it read in part, dear John, it's a dear John letter. Quite literally. <laughs> By the time you get this letter, I will have taken my life and the kids. I know this may come as a shock, but I'm not as strong as you thought. You're probably wondering why the kids, too. It was because I didn't want to leave them to be a burden on mom or anyone else to be, or to be separated. After she wrote the letter, she took this letter out to the mailbox. She said, I left the deadbolt undone so that my mother would be able to get it in. I've always wondered what the mailman thought once he heard about what happened. It was at that point that she swallowed the rest of the Elevil and then tried to inject her arm with the remaining potassium, um, which was more than a lethal dose. But the drug ate a hole in her arm, like I said, and collapsed her vein. Now, the next day when she didn't show up for work. See, this is kind of fishy to me because I almost like she didn't show up to work. And then her mom comes in the next morning. How did her mom know she didn't show up for work? Like all this happens, all this transpires. Maybe they uh -huh. called her and said, your daughter hasn't shown up for work and maybe... It's about no. 7.30 in the morning, so I'm not really sure. Um, so Carol Thomas ends up going to her daughter's house, and she finds her daughter unconscious. She finds the children dead. She says, my daughter and her babies are dead on her 911 call. Mm. Officers David Smith and Steve Henker enter the apartment, and they find the children's bodies on the bed, and then they find Christina on the floor in the bedroom. 
She was not dead. She was semi-conscious, but she was not responding. They ended up taking her to the hospital where they stabilized her in intensive care and she was kept under police guard. Now, on the night of the 5th of November, her family knew that they needed to hire an attorney. So they, um, but because they weren't allowed to see her, the police were like, no, you can't see her. She's, you know, whatever. They ended up getting her an attorney and um, the doctors are like, well, you know, she's not ready for you for her to talk to anyone. However, the police went in and ended up taking an eight minute tape confession from her on the morning of November 6th. Now, much of the statement was inaudible because she was crying throughout. And then towards the end, it appears she appears to be hallucinating. At this point, after the interview, they end up charging her with two counts of murder, capital murder. All right, so Detective Jones and Detective Williams of the Sherwood Police Department interview Riggs on November 6th, 1997 at 9.20 a.m. She's lying in her hospital bed, and police had previously been told that her family had secured counsel for her and that they were to wait for his presence, but they didn't. They interviewed her anyway. So, will this come back to bite them in the ass? It tries to come back to bite them in the ass, yes. So, Detective Jones comes in and he's like, Christina, do you understand that I'm recording this? And she says, yes, I do. So he's Mirandizing her. You have the right to remain silent. And the entire time, she can be heard crying in the background. When asked if she understood her rights, she said yes. Now, Detective Jones explained that they were investigating the deaths of her two babies. And he asked her if she wanted to tell them what happened. So Riggs is still crying. She says, I killed them. And Detective Jones says, what did you say? And Rick said, I said... And then she kind of like trails off. And Detective Jones says, did you say you killed them? And Rick says, I'm sorry. And Detective Jones says, Christina, how did you go about doing that? And Riggs, you know, keep in mind that she's in this hospital bed. She's still kind of drugged up a little bit. She says, I got some bottles and stuff from here. And I need a cigarette. So then there's like inaudible, like you can't hear what she's saying. She's just rambling. She's just rambling. And then she says, Darvisset. Which is not a very strong painkiller. At all. And I'm not sure why she said that. She just said it. She said, I need a cigarette. And Darv said. I mean, they used to give me that for my menstrual cramps. It's nothing. They don't even get people anymore. Um, and so the detective says, are you saying that you got some medicine from the hospital? Risa has no verbal response. Detective Jones says, Christina, how did you do it? Did you get them an injection? Did you give them a shot? So it's kind of like leading the witness. But That's is that? What, uh, yes, it very much is. Okay. In my opinion. Yeah. I tried to, Riggs says, and I did it with Justin because I figured with him being the oldest one that he would give me more problems. Detective Jones says, "Uh uh-huh, yes. And she says, so I tried it with him and I thought it would just stop his heart, but it hurt. Oh, he said it hurt, inaudible talking. Detective Jones says, "Uh uh-huh, yes. And Riggs says it didn't work. He just kept calling mama, mama, mama. I just figured it was too late now because I had no place to turn back to. I cleaned out my checking account and gave my mom all the money I had. She's crying at this point. Now, I just want to stop for a minute because she cleaned out her bank account and gave all of her money to her mom. Wouldn't that be a red flag if you were a mom? I mean, I guess if she said, here, mom, here's all the money I have. I don't know. I guess it would just depend on the context of that conversation. Right. It's a pod dog upset. What is it? I know. Gigi. You need some attention? So she's crying and Detective Jones says, Christina, why did you do this? And she says, because I wanted to die, but I didn't want to die and leave my kids behind for them to be a burden to somebody else. I didn't want them to think that I didn't love them. And I didn't want them to grow up separately because they have two different daddies. And I knew if I passed away, they would be fighting my mother for custody. And I didn't want that for nobody. 
Detective John says, you felt like you were doing it for the kid's sake. And Rick says, in a way, yeah. And then there's more uh, inaudible talking. She says, my peace of mind. And Detective John says, Christina, did you really want to die? And I guess he's asking that because, you know, her kids are dead and she attempted suicide but didn't really die. So, you know what? Is this a ruse? Right. Yeah. So Detective Jones says, so you felt like you were doing it for the kid's sake. And Rick says, yeah, in a way, yeah, um, a peace of mind. Detective Jones says, Christina, did you really want to die again? And she's crying. And he says, and you felt it would be better if your children just die with you. And was the children already dead before you took your medicine? Rick says, yes. Detective Jones says, how long have they been dead before you took your medicine? She says, oh, about 20 minutes. About 20 minutes, he asks. She says, yes, that's because I drank and got up and smoked a cigarette and got back and sit for a minute. And and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it now. I can't turn back now because you've already killed Justin. And so I did it. And Detective Jones says, what time did you give them the medicine? Do you remember? She's got inaudible. She says something inaudible. And then she says, Justin, about 10, 15 or 10, 30. Detective Jones clarifies, says 10, 15 or 10, 30 in the morning. And Rick says, no, in the evening. And he says, oh, in the evening. And she says, last night. Detective Rick says, or Detective Jones says, okay. And she says, then I smoked another cigarette and waited and suffocated Shelby. Detective Jones says, you suffocated Shelby. And Rick's crying. Detective Jones says, what did you, how did you suffocate her? And Rick says, I put a pillow over her head. Detective Jones says, okay, did you? And Riggs is crying in the background. Detective Jones says, had you given her any medicine at all or any of the morphine or the potassium chloride? Rick says, I slipped them. I made them drink half of an Elevil because I figured that would make them sleep a little bit better so that it wouldn't wake them. So more inaudible talking. Detective Jones says, so Shelby, Shelby, you killed her with a pillow. You suffocated her. And what about the little boy? How did you do him? Rick says, I gave him the medicine and when it didn't work, more inaudible talking. Detective Jones says, you suffocated him too? Riggs is crying. And Detective Jones says, or, and she says, yes. And Detective Jones says, with a pillow? And she's crying. And Detective Jones says, were they fighting while you were suffocating them? And Riggs says, Justin did. Shelby a little bit, but not much. Detective Jones says, when did you decide to do this? Christina, on what day did you decide to do this? So here he's establishing premeditated yes. murder, right? Riggs yeah. says, uh, the best I remember it was Sunday night or Saturday night because we was out talking and this and that and the other and they caught me. Rick, Detective Jones says, who caught you? And Rick says, the Sherwood got me depressed. I was thinking about what was going on in my life and that things aren't always working for me. And I'm thinking that she's referring to the writing the bad check like she got caught by the Sherwood Police Department, maybe. Oh, that's okay. my guess yeah. is that she says that the Sherwood got me depressed. I think that's the okay. bad check and coming. And it just kind of like mm-hmm. compounded what she was already feeling and then just hopelessness at that point. Right. So he, Detective Jones says, when did you get those drugs from the hospital? And Rick says, when? And Detective Jones says, uh-huh, yes. And she says, yesterday. Detective Jones says, yesterday? There's no verbal response. He says, you mean the day that you killed them? Is that the day that you got the drugs? The last was it? Riggs has an inaudible. And then she says, 7th Street, right? And Detective Jones is like, was it the last day that you worked at the hospital or the day before that? Riggs says, I think. And then Detective Jones says, when you got. And then Riggs says, I got the drugs and gave them to my kids. That's the only drugs that I had on my hand. And I know that there was three Valiums in a vial in there. 
but there wasn't enough to even cover the jar up. And then more inaudible talking, put it in my pocket and bring them home. So here he's like random words that she's saying. Yeah, that doesn't make sense really. Detective Jones says, "Uh uh-huh, yes. And Rick says, and I know I should have thought better had somebody rinsing with me, but they were just what came home in my pockets. Detective Jones said, did you know what you were going to do when you took the drugs from the hospital? Did you have intentions of giving them to your children? And how many days did you think about this before you killed your children? And Rick says, about three weeks, two weeks. Detective Jones says, two or three weeks. In other words, you've been thinking about doing this for the last two or three weeks. There's no verbal response from Riggs. And Detective Jones says, what made you decide to just go ahead and do it? Riggs said, I just can't take it no more. And Detective Jones says, you couldn't take it anymore. Riggs says, I felt like I was out of control. Detective Jones says, did you just feel like your life was in a mess and there's no verbal response? And then he says, did you talk to anybody about this, your mom or anybody? And she says, I've tried to talk to people about what I feel and what I think. And they were just like, I don't have time right now. We'll do it some other time. So I just got to where I don't care anymore. I, and then there's something inaudible, but they can't give me no help. Detective Jones says, so you just felt like nobody was listening to you. And she's crying. And he says, okay, Christina. And then she says, answer me something. Did you come down the escalators by yourself? And he says, uh, did we come down the escalator by ourselves?" Now there are no escalators there. Okay. Okay. She's just totally out of her mind. I your, mean, yeah. So then she says yeah. to him, your mother, when she came in town and Detective Jones is like, your mother? And Rick says, it seems like I keep seeing some old people getting on the elevators, sitting down away from the and more inaudible talking. She didn't like what was on it. So she put well, just like your mother. Detective Jones is like, Christina, do you have anything more to say about your babies or anything? And Riggs says, I wish I hadn't done it now. Detective Jones says, okay. Detective Williams, do you have anything to add to this interview? Because there's another detective in there. Oh. And she says, no. And Detective Jones says, this is Detective Jones. The time is 9.28 a.m. This concludes the interview. So he concludes the interview when she starts talking crazy stuff. Of course he does. Mm-hmm. Now, the next day, she was discharged from the hospital and she was subsequently arrested. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that interview a little bit later because okay. it will come back. Okay. You could probably force that was, you could probably predict what's going to happen, right? Maybe. Yeah. All right. So, um, when she went to trial, before she went to trial, her attorney tried to suppress that hospital statement. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I don't agree with what she did, but she still, she has the same rights that you and I do. So even though she's guilty as hell and killed her kids and tried to kill herself, she's still, they shouldn't have done that interview. Right. I mean. Or it shouldn't be allowed in, in her trial, right? No, it should because, be suppressed. Well, first off, she clearly wasn't in her right state of mind, even though she might've been telling partial truth there. There was still the, we've got her an attorney and you don't need to. So that's totally, that's a total disregard of their oath, their rules, their right. how you do shit in that line of work. Right. Like, what is that? Right to counsel? Is that your Fifth Amendment? You have the right to counsel? Yeah, I got you, These are things we should know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, her attorneys are saying that she pleaded not, well, she ended up pleading not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. 
We should definitely know that considering. It is the Fifth Amendment. It's yeah. also in your Sixth Amendment, if I'm not mistaken. And that's the. Fourth or Sixth. Yeah. But definitely your Fifth, right to counsel. And that's the um, Gideon versus Wainwright. Yes. Well, that's, that's got more to do with being indigent and you of free right public. To, right. Right to an attorney. Right you can't attorney. afford one. Right. Yeah. Girl, don't get me on that now. <laughs> anyway, she pleaded not. She ended up, um, her her attorney tried to get that statement suppressed, but it was rejected by the judge. Her trial began on June 23rd, 1998. She did plead not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. And she said that at the time of the killing, she was unable to appreciate the wrongfulness of her conduct or to conform her conduct to the law. Ooh, what do you think about that before we move on? About what? About... Her, do you think that because she was depressed, do you think that she could plead not guilty? Like, is that a sound plea? Depression is not batshit crazy, right? Or does your depression cause you to not realize what you're doing? Is it, my personal opinion yes. is that your depression should not seep into the lives of anyone amount around you mm-hmm. even though it does depression affects an entire family it does but, but if you decide you. that you're going to if you right if you decide that you want to end your life why should you feel like it's okay for you to end someone else's okay and if you think that it is okay is it more than depression there right so was she more than depressed i don't know i mean because a lot at face value for what we have right here, I'm like, oh, she was depressed, but that doesn't mean that you don't know the difference between right and wrong. People who are out of their mind. I keep thinking, there are things that I, that I keep thinking is, you know, what, did she really try to kill herself? Obviously, she did really try to kill herself. They say that, that 28, the 28 pills that she took in itself mm-hmm. should have killed herself, should have killed her. But then I'm thinking, you know what, her mom comes in at the right time, the door's open, um... You know, and I could be reading more into this. Like, who knows? Whatever. I mean, I'm for the kids. Yes. Yes. But I just, I mean, just stopping where we are, I don't know that just saying depression, I was depressed, I didn't see a way out, is a legitimate case for reason of insanity or mental defect. I don't, I mean. Well, let's see what the jury says. I mean, people who are depressed do think that they can't. That they have no other option. Like, if they're suicidal, there's no other option. It's not a, a selfish thing. I, and I do believe this. It's not a selfish thing. They don't think, well, I'm going to kill myself and my family's going to suffer. Usually, it's they think that their family will be better off. Right. And, and that's like, her argument is, you know, I want my family to be better off with me gone, but they're not going to be better off if I leave them my kids. Okay. All right. Please continue. Okay. So in the opening statements of the trial, so I've already pointed out that she was interviewed. She had the police interview in the hospital room. Mm -hmm. I'm going to point out to the opening statement of the prosecution because those two things are going to come back later in an appeal. Okay. So in the opening statements, the the prosecutor dramatically goes for blood. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to go somewhere with me. I want you to go with me to the residence at 8015 Brocco Lane, Sherwood, Arkansas. As we walk up the sidewalk to the residence, we go to the front door. And as we enter the front door, we hear the laughter of two small children. We open the door and they're not there in the front room. So we follow the laughter down a hallway. 
And then her attorney says, um, Your Honor, this is argument. Talking about the laughter of two dead children, the court says this is opening statements and he overruled the objection. So they're saying, you know, this is prejudicial to our client. Yeah, but aren't usually opening statements yeah. that? Right? Yeah. Now, her attorney's opening statement said that one truth in this case is that if she had died, we wouldn't be here in this courtroom. Well, no shit. She'd be dead. <laughs> right? She would have been written off as a disturbed mother, and no one would have dug into it to find out why this happened, but she lived. So, you know, nobody would be thinking about these two kids if she had died. That's not necessarily true, but I get where he's going. He's trying to set up that insanity plea. Right. Now, the defense brought in a psychiatrist and a psychologist who testified that her actions were the result of severe depression. They gave the opinion that to her, the children's deaths were an act of love and an extension of her own suicide. The psychologist said that the pathological suicidal depression that she was in effectively precluded her from being able to do something more reasonable and something more appropriate. From the outside looking in, the death of two children like this is pretty horrible, but from the inside looking out, it looks like an act of mercy. Now, the psychiatrist testified that she was mentally ill. She suffered from severe depression, which led her to believe that it was an act of love to take her children with her in death. Doctors who talked to her say she killed the children out of mercy to save them from being separated after her death. So she didn't want the kids to be separated is what she's saying. In addition, the psychologist and psychiatrist who testified on her behalf said that their, her family had had a long history of depression and suicide. Um, Riggs also claimed to have been sexually abused as a child, which caused her to internalize her feelings and suffer silently. And I mean, that's awful. Yeah, it is. I mean, like, and I'll talk about it more in the appeal, but yes, that was something that she had dealt with. Like, you know, her mom attempted suicide or sisters oh, attempted suicide. Really? Yeah, it was just... Oh, wow. Now, prosecution says, uh, er, back up a minute, because these are just excuses that she's using for murdering her children. Simply put, she's a self-centered, premeditated killer who did the unspeakable act of taking her own children's lives, and she used every excuse in the world. Now, he further stated that, um, and he brought witnesses in who said that she felt that her children were a hindrance and an inconvenience. For example, he had one witness um, testify that she would lock her children in the room for hours and leave Justin and Shelby alone. And then she would go out to bars, karaoke bars. Other times um, she would leave the children with her mom. But her attorney was very angered by this. And he said, look, that happened one time. One time that witness who came in and testified that she would go to karaoke bars. That same witness actually would let Riggs babysit her own kids. So it happened one time. But still, you uh, don't, you leave your kids locked no, up, right? We lived in a house once where there was a closet door that had a lock on the outside. And the neighbor said that the, um, the parents called that the no-no closet. Oh, my Lord. And they would lock the kids in the closet. Gabriel Fernandez. And there was also, because, well, like, the house was in, oh, it was awful. But, um, and we did a lot of work to it when we moved in. But, um... The bet the kids' bedrooms also had the locks on the outside, so they would lock them in the room. And the neighbors told us that the kids would open up the windows and like crawl out like naked and run up another streets because they were like escaping their fucking prison. Awful. So now you know. Yeah. Like we're like, don't make us put you in the no-no closet. <laughs> God. Um. Now, 
Again, she had been arrested on a bad check charge, threatened with jail if she issued any more bad checks. In addition, she claimed that uh, she was having trouble getting support from a child's father. She was working 12-hour shifts at the hospital. It still wasn't enough to cover daycare and other expenses. I mean, I know that sucks, but I mean, I guess I was just fortunate. I mean, I was, de- I mean, I've been depressed before, but I, I guess just not ever to the scale. I was a single parent. I didn't get any help from her father. I got financial help from his parents, but not him. And I mean, I just, you just do what you got to do. I mean, it might suck for a while, but shit, we have multiple jobs now. And I'm married with a husband and, you know, I mean. Right. It, I, guess, I guess because I'm not in that she, state of mind. So right. I, I and, you know, I mean, were you molested from 7 to 13? And you're obese. And, yeah. So, I mean, there were a lot of other things. Not to excuse it at all. Right. Um, She claimed that um, she would have to pawn things to have birth. She pawned a VCR in her TV to pay for Justin's birthday party. I mean, so she was sacrificing. Also. Yes. Now, Hall said that Riggs earned about $17,000 a year. And in 1996, 97, not sure not, how. Not enough money. Not, okay. Yeah. It's not enough. I made more money working at the Outback. Right. She had a poor self. He, you know, he went on to say, bring up her poor relationships with men or poor self image over her weight. And all of these things conspired to turn her into um, a suicidal child killer. Now, she used every excuse in the book, according to the prosecution, and he says that the jury just saw her as a manipulative, self-centered person that she really was. She claims that she was horribly depressed, she was overweight, she was a single mom, and she didn't have enough money. And the prosecution says, well, my response to that is, welcome to America. Plenty of folks are in far worse situations than she was. Damn, ruthless. (laughs) Welcome to America, bitch, right? Golly. Now, prosecutor says that Riggs also claimed that while previously working in a hospital in Oklahoma City, that she suffered post-traumatic stress disorder while treating victims of the April 1995 bombing. So we talked about this earlier. Well, I 100% believe that. But there are no hospital records that that's show that she was ever there. Oh. So she was saying, oh, yeah, I have PTSD, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean... She could have performed triage just as a normal person, as a not civilian, right? Like so, out on the street, yeah. Um, but they, but her, her pros, her defense didn't bring that up later. I guess because there well, were no records to prove it. I mean, so, they, yeah. look at, let's take nine eleven. Look at all the people right. who, yeah. I mean, helped with that, and they weren't in a hospital. I mean, doing their job, right. you know, like their paid positions. They helped on the street corners. They helped this. So right. who the hell, I mean. Who's to say that she didn't Go really, downtown yes. and help people because right. that is what she did for a living. Um, in addition, he stated that the children's fathers were making most of their support payments on time. And he says making most of them. But even one month late is enough to set you back. Well, and let's, let's be real here for a minute, okay? She was probably getting, like, $175 a month. Right. I mean, she probably wasn't getting very much to begin with. If they weren't making their regular payments, they might have had job issues, or they might have been working at the fucking Taco Bell and making minimum wage. Who knows? So she probably really wasn't getting a whole lot of support. Right. Now, the prosecutor stated that he believes that Riggs's suicide attempt was a ruse. He said that she took just enough to render her unconscious, and it was her intent that it would seem like a, a suicide 
that would not, uh, and she, it was her intent to live. Right. Yeah. Mm. Now the Pulaski County jury did convict her that, um, and during the penalty phase, she's just like, I don't want you to put up a defense for me. I just want them to put me to death. I want the death sentence. She's trying to fulfill her end goal of, of, de- right. of death. Now, the prosecution, um, she was very upset by the prosecution saying that, you know, she was a hoe who left, locked her kids up and whatnot. She says, I was by no means Beaver Cleaver's mother, but I was doing the best I knew how to do. She was still very angry about their conclusion that she was a simple mom who simply wanted to get rid of her kids because they tied her down. She said, never once, not once did I see them as an inconvenience. Now, witnesses testified that Rakes had left her children locked in a bedroom, but, you know, I already addressed that. She says, as a mom, I did not like to hear that she was not a good mother. This is what her mom is saying. Right. And her mom's like, you know, she was, she wasn't some party girl who didn't want her kids anymore. She said, that's garbage. Now, Thomas, the mom, says she knew better than anyone how Riggs, Riggs treated her children. She said, I picked those children up from daycare each afternoon and kept them until my daughter's shift ended. And did she ever leave my grandchildren alone? No. She said that her grandson, Justin, would have told her if, she, if he had been locked in his room and left there. So, you know, the kid would have said, Mommy locked me in my room. Right. But people don't realize how much I was there, Carol Thomas said. So she wasn't like... She goes on. She says, yeah, my daughter kept plenty of Kool-Aid stocked in a refrigerator. Oh, that makes a good mom, right? And the artwork's all over the, t- the refrigerator. Yeah, what's Kool-Aid got to do? What's, what's Kool-Aid got to do with the price of tea in China? Right? She would decorate the room the way that the one that they shared. So apparently she was a good mom because they had lots of Kool-Aid. And a decorated room. Right? Now, Jeez, my kids are missing out. Yeah. The grandmother can points out Justin's fifth birthday when Riggs hawked the VCR so she could afford the party at Chuck E. Cheese. Fuck, how much money did she get for her damn VCR? I don't know. <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese is not cheap. Not even you know. in 1996. Um, now, she said that she spent three weeks planning her suicide and at the same time trying to figure out a way to leave Justin and Shelby behind. With positive memories of their mother. So she goes on a spending spree. All right. She, two weeks before the children's death, she takes out a cash advance using most of the money to take her children out for the perfect day. They went to a birthday party. They went to the roller rink. They went to a movie theater and watched Hercules. Um, They had pizza. She's like, I wanted them to have good memories of their mom. I just didn't want them to have, um, because I didn't know I was going to be the one left behind. Well, they wouldn't, if she's killing them, they won't have any memories of her. But this was when she said before she was planning to kill them. Oh, She was okay. just going to kill herself. Gotcha. She continues to whine that nothing she had ever, nothing had ever worked out for her. But she did keep up a positive front beforehand. She said that she would fall apart when her kids would go to bed or, you know, go in the bathroom and cry. Now her attorney argued the mitigating factors of sexual abuse and also her own family's depression. She was a single mom working long shifts as a nurse. And over the years she had flirted with thoughts of killing herself at trial. She said um, that there was testimony at trial that she had been on Prozac before and um, she just couldn't overcome the depression. She had thought of suicide a number of times, but there were her kids to consider, and she didn't know what death would do to them. She, What would become of them if she killed herself? 
And it was at that point she decided that she couldn't have her kids split up to go to each father. She she had to take them with her. And they would automatically yeah. go to them. Right. If... Yeah. She said that um, her oldest son, Justin, was a lively child with ADD. And, um, you know, she was just afraid that whoever gets him is not going to be able to take him. And then Shelby was known as Miss Pris. She's just like, what if nobody wanted them? You know what? My mom's going to have to fight over them. So that's the decision that she made. She said both scenarios made my kid's future look pretty dismal. Now, Justin took medicine for his ADD and he was extremely over um, hyperactive and he was a handful. People would refuse to look out for him. So she was just afraid, you know, he's not going to have a good childhood because people want to beat him to death. Right. So it was just, it was a sad thing, but it was a way she rationalized that I'm going to have to protect them and I have to take them with me. Mm. Um, now, the prosecution said that her suicide bid was, um, was genuine, but they did not believe that she was sufficiently depressed to justify killing the children. So that could not be used as mental impairment, according to the prosecution. Oh, okay. So being depressed mm -hmm. is not an excuse for killing your kids. At okay. the sentencing, um, she refuses to have any evidence presented on her behalf. And the jury, she asked the jury for a death sentence. She says, I want to die. I want to be with my babes. I started this out seven months ago and I want you to give me the death penalty. I don't want you to feel guilty. So the jury gave her what she wanted and sentenced her to death. And she was placed in the Arkansas Department of Correction System and held at the McPherson unit which included the female death row until her execution. Because the execution chamber is located in the Cummins unit. Okay. Um, of her daughter, she said, I miss her. Oh, no. Okay. So during this, the sentencing trial, John Riggs comes back, right? Oh, of course The he dad does. of his. Of course he yeah. does. And of his daughter, he says, I miss her. It's been so hard. I may never have a chance of having kids again. I know that's nobody's fault but my own. It just hurts because that was the only family that I had and it's been ripped for me. You left. Right. And Chris, Christina was infuriated by this because she had an interview while she was in prison. And she's like, he never asked to see her. He never sent her money. He never called. My question is, is what, how long was it going to be for him to, for Shelby to wait for him to be a part of her life? I know someone like that. Do you? Yeah. I sure do. Yeah. Now, there is a family history of depression and suicide, like I told you. After the children's deaths, Christina's older sister, Liz, decided that she had to see for herself what was going on with her little sister. And they went, you know, they went uh, snooping into her stuff. Mm -hmm. And they found some old journals and they were examining old letters and they were stunned by what they read. It was only then that they began talking about the family's history, which is cluttered with depression, mental illness, attempted suicide, one cousin had succeeded in killing himself. Riggs's grandmother was in and out of mental institutions. Wow. Uh, yeah. She, um, Thomas, her mom, had tried to kill, kill herself when Riggs was still a baby. And even her sister Liz had attempted suicide as a teenager, but instead spent the night throwing up after her mom found her. So like, they've been on antidepressants things throughout. Wow. So was Christina on an antidepressant, like, regularly? Was she being treated for this depression. I don't know. I mean, as a medical professional. I, now, she was taking Elevil occasionally for her pain. I don't know what she was on. But I know she did drink. She did smoke. Um, I don't know what she was on. Honestly, it didn't yeah, say. The, the doctor also said you can't drink while taking the Elevil at all. Okay. So, I mean, that's a. 
That's a no-no, too. But, I mean... Um, now, her sister said it's tough because it's so wrong. She said that on the Wait, one hand... Oh, go ahead. What pain was she in to be taken the Something with her back. Oh, okay. She had some sort of back pain. And her sister says, um, on one hand, I think this is a terrible injustice sentencing someone to die who could benefit from psychological treatment. Someone who could one day be okay in society. Because the jury had said, yeah, she could be okay some, one day in society. But you know what? She killed her kids. Yeah, there's no one day in society. Right. And the sister said, and then there's another question. She'd have to live the rest of her life knowing that she killed her kids. And can you ever get over that? No, no. So, um, so Ellaville amitriptyline is actually a nerve pain medication and an antidepressant. Right. No now, one ever has. Yeah. So <laughs> when you're on death row, you get an automatic appeal. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Automatic. No ifs, ands, or whatever. Now, she did not want to appeal her guilt. She said, I just want to appeal the fact that I did it because I was depressed. So, yes, I'm guilty of killing my children, but I was guilty by mental... I want... Defect. Yeah. Mental, I mean, because it's a mental... It's, yeah. it, it's a real thing. It's a disease. Now, yeah. In her... Fetched, now, yeah. now, her son Justin was five and Shelby was two when they died. And in her appeal, she raises four points. One... That her statement to the police while she was in the hospital was involuntary and unintelligible. So it, um, because she had, she was still under the effects of the drugs. And, um, okay. Also, number two, that the trial court erred in refusing to give instructions that the jury should consider her mental disease. So when they were going in, is she guilty by defect of mental disease? They didn't get to decide that. I mean... Depression is a mental disease. But is it the jury's place to say she was mentally defect? Isn't that like the psychiatrist? That's like a doctor's. Yes. That's not up diagnosis. to. It's yeah. not up to a jury to say, oh, she's mentally Well, this is sick. what I think. Well, it doesn't fucking right. matter what I think. Right. A, a medical professional, psychiatrist, psychologist. Now, yeah. Now, they also stated um, her defense also said that the trial court erred in overruling the objection of the opening statements being prejudicial. Eh. Remember? Yeah, I mean, that one definitely yeah. gets thrown out pretty quickly. Yeah. And then um, that the trial court aired in admitting into evidence for pre prejudicial photographs. So they, they showed, showed pictures of the kids. Yes. Now, but that's kind of needed in a, it is. In a it trial. Is. So that's thrown out. That comes up a lot. Yes. And I'm like, well, and I guess maybe they're, I guess some say that it could be excessive. Like, how many pictures do you really need to see? Right. There were only four. Well, then. Right. Yes. That's like two but of each the, kid. But they're not disputing the fact that she killed the kids. Yeah. So why show the pictures of the dead babies? To prejudice the jury. Right. But the court throws that out. Okay. Okay. Because I have a friend who was murdered, and I and they showed t lots of pictures of his. As a, I've never been on the jury of a murder trial, but I've sat in the courtroom. Um, I think that the jury does need to see what you did. Right. Regardless if it's five pictures, 20 pictures. I don't, I mean, I get, I mean, if the jury needs to see what you did. Right. And they're going to hammer that also, home. I mean, I, I can, I agree with you. But I also feel like sometimes certain pictures taken out of context don't tell the true story. So it would depend. Now, she's not disputing the fact that she killed her children. Right. Yeah. But so those pictures, right. 
All right. Gotcha. So now she argues that her statement at the hospital with um, the Miranda rights, her claim is that her medical condition re- rendered her vulnerable. She was hallucinating and delusional at the time of the statement. So um, really it should have been null and void at that point because she was not right, really in her right. Right. Now, the, but according to doctors, doctor testimony, some doctor said, you know, well, her stomach was pumped. She was given charcoal to absorb this. So by the time the police came in, she was oriented and alert. Her vital signs were stable. And this was before she gave her statement. And he added that she responded appropriately to his questions. She was not hallucinating or incoherent at the time. So the doctor had it in the chart that she was stable and oriented and alert. So before they came in, that was already in her chart. Now, another doctor will say um, a nurse, a nurse testified that when she first came into contact with Riggs, that Riggs was um, combative and incoherent. She, um, but then the next morning she was calm and answered questions appropriately. And she said that this was not anything big because when you have an OD, when you OD, you can be awake and alert the very next day and oriented. Yes. Right. So it's not like, um, it takes, it's not like a huge time in between your healing from an OD. So, but was her mental state well, the reason she, why she she testified that according to her notes, Riggs was speaking rapidly and was hard to understand, but that she could understand her. Miss Stiles then referred to the assessment that she did of Riggs using the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is a scale used to determine a patient's level of consciousness. And Miss Stiles testified that at eight o'clock in the morning on November sixth, she gave Riggs a fifteen, which is the highest score you could receive. So mm-hmm. on cross examination, she noted that Riggs signed the discharge orders from the vis- physician but her signature was ineligible long story short they did bring up the hallucinations and the appeal as well but the court overruled those they they said lower court did what they were supposed to do everybody did the right thing so they upheld all the reasons for the appeal even the interview yes even the interview because she was mirandized she said she understood and the doctors had put, the doctor and the nurse had said that she was fine, alert, oriented before the interview. So they, they kept that. Okay. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Huckabee was the governor at this time? Yes, he was. Yeah, he wouldn't get, he wouldn't let her off. No, he wouldn't. No. Well, no, we'll talk. But you know, he has a yeah. house here. Okay, well. I say where? Okay. Just here. All right. No, I did not know that. We'll, have to well talk actually, about it it's later. not. It's okay. not technically here in this county, but it's like thirty okay. minutes away. All right. So we'll talk about that later. Anyway, no, he did. ACLU wrote him a letter and said, you know, that her rights were infringed on. She was hallucinating. Blah blah blah. He just didn't do anything with it. Like he, you know, he could have called. But he didn't. He didn't, he didn't voice anything about it. He just didn't call to stop it. Yeah, I so, mean, which, how many people really would have? Right. So her execution, and he actually says, you know, that I've looked at all the circumstances and the jury of her peers sentenced her to death. Who am I to take that away from them? Who am I to stop it? So he doesn't. I mean, okay. that's kind of like the rights that everyone fought for so that you would have that jury of your peers and... Okay, so anyway, on Sunday, April 30th, she's flown from McPherson to Cummins, which is um, one uh, one prison to where they do the executions. Blew her? Yes. 
in a plane. Wow. Or a helicopter. Something that goes in the air. I'm surprised they didn't put her ass on a bus. (laughs) Two days later, on May 2nd, according to the prison death watch log, she curls her hair at 7.15, she meets with her ministers once more. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, I actually learned if you're in prison, you curl your hair with your socks. You wrap your hair around your balled-up socks. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, She so said I, that she learned a lot of things in prison. Okay. And that was one of them. With that said, somehow I came across this video with this girl who was... Who learned how? I sound super southern. That um, she learned how to do her makeup in jail with the resources she had. Yes. So I guess that would, you know, yes. be one of those. Curl things. your hair with your with your socks. Yes. Huh. She put her makeup on. She put on her new inmate whites, and she told her attorney, "I love you. I thank you for all you've done. I'll see you later." And she's told him, "This is what I want," and he says, "I know, Christina. I love you too." Mm. She was then strapped into a gurney and um, ready to go, but she had to wait 18 minutes because they couldn't find a vein. That's because she blew it up. Right. She probably literally damaged right. her the, vein. The one, um, she couldn't find one at her, her elbow, and it said that she actually helped them find a vein. She agreed to having the needles at her wrist, and at last the process began. She was executed by lethal ejection at 9.28 p.m. Central Daylight Time on May 2nd in 2000. She was only the fifth woman executed in the United States since the reinstatement of the death penalty in 1976. Wow. And she was the first woman executed in Arkansas since 1845. Wow. Yeah. Now, her statement before execution began, no words can express just how sorry I am for taking the lives of my babies. No way I can make up for or take away the pain I have caused anyone or everyone who knew and loved them. Now, her last words were, I love you, my babies. Ironically, she was executed with potassium chloride injection, which was the same drug that she'd used in the murders. And a few minutes after her last words, she coughed and gagged a little before her face turned purple. Is that really <laughs> ironic? I don't know. Yeah, I think it kind of is. The execution went smoothly and then she gained her death certificate nine minutes after she had her chemicals and her final wish was fulfilled. So was she receiving treatment for her depression and so she had like in prison and so she had come to all right this is what i did i own it and now this is what i deserve i mean i don't really know she, i'm really naive with she had wanted treatment. the death she had claimed she wanted the death penalty from the minute that she was found guilty right but do they treat you for i mean i would imagine depression? but it didn't say i mean i would imagine that that you get treated for that if you see your psychiatrist or whatever while you're in prison and they prescribe you medication you're gonna get it okay i I just really don't know i know that sounds well i don't know i can look it up for you and let you know but um, i mean if you have cancer in prison do you get cancer treatment yeah and taxpayer money yeah so she probably got depression because remember robert mormon and a bloody box of bones that he had a heart attack while he was in prison and they gave him heart surgery and all this other stuff that's true Yeah. yeah and that was in arizona All right, so Riggs was the 31st murderer executed in the United States in 2000, the 629th murderer executed in U.S. since 1976. Um, I want to talk about her last meal. And if you go to lastmeals.blogspot.com, you can follow whoever this guy, this person is, Dylan, um, Dylan Schultz. And this guy goes and he eats the meals of, of death row 
are death row people. What he goes fuck? and he eats the last meal. So according to this guy, um, Chris, Christina Marie Riggs, her last meal, um, she chose a Supreme pizza salad. Doesn't say what kind of salad dressing. She had okra, a cherry limeade, and strawberry shortcake. Now, according to Dylan, he had the pizza and salad at Maud's Pizza, the okra at Brown's Chicken, and the cake and limeade at Walmart. Okay, I'm sorry. He put a picture here, and that's not cherry limeade. That's fucking me, me, Mio. Walmart brand Mio. Oh. That ain't real ch- cherry limeade. Okay. I'm sorry. What kind of <laughs> fucking person has a... A last meal. Listen, Does Jimmy know about this? We listen. I don't know if Jimmy knows about this. Jimmy, if you're listening, <laughs> Jimmy, we hope you're listening. We love you, Jimmy. Um, Jimmy, Jimmy needs this website. I've, I, I got to tell him about okay. it. Okay. All right. So if you too want to see this website, it's at lastmeals.blogspot.com. And that's my story of Christina Riggs, okay? I'm fucking in shock. After all the things that you've talked about today, this is what I'm truly in shock about. <laughs> right? Hey, listen, it's fun. This, there, it takes all kinds to run the world, right? Uh, apparently. Well, anyway, guys, thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this week's murder. We so appreciate sharing our passion with you, and we thank you for your support. It went a little long this week, but hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us even further, you can subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star rating. While there, please leave us a comment about absolutely anything. Please. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. Helps push us up the charts. You can do this on your favorite platform. And for more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. We are so grateful to spend our time together to share our murderous stories. Thank you so much for listening to us and supporting us. We would like to thank our Patreon supporters because they are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a five-star rating. And thanks again, guys. And remember, it it wasn't wasn't me. me.